a brief note. I've been asked to, by Bishop Scarlett to preach on the subject of tithing today as we enter into a parish-wide season of giving, uh, encompassing all of our fundraising efforts and also our pledge drive to come. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. The word tithe comes to us from the Old English word meaning tenth. The first time we see tithing a tenth practiced in the scriptures is when Abram gives a tenth of his possessions to the priest Melchizedek in Genesis 14. A similar offering is then promised shortly after by Abram's grandson Jacob in Genesis 28. The Mosaic law of the people of Israel took this example and made a code out of it, as recorded in the law of Leviticus 27 and remembered in Deuteronomy 14, which required the children of Israel to give the first fruits of their harvest and herds to the Lord. By the word of God, as recorded in Numbers chapter 18, the tithes offered to God came under the stewardship of the priests of the tabernacle, who were supposed to take these and allocate the offerings to supporting the existence of the place of worship in which they served, and for sustaining their own families. Beyond this tithe to support the worship of Israel and to honor God as giver, another tithe was then expected out of what remained after that first tithe. It was a special generosity offering given at least every three years in a so-called year of tithes, as recorded in Deuteronomy 26. This time, with this second tithe, the tithes went to support those who were in need, the orphans and widows in particular. So we see the tithe of first fruits was a grateful acknowledgement of the provision of God and was practiced through this incarnational discipline of giving back a tenth of everything to God. Not because the tenth was God's cut in everything, that was his share, but because by giving a tenth, it acted as an offering of thanksgiving that would redeem everything else, that would redeem the whole of one's income and possessions, consecrating the whole to holy use. The tithe to the needy, that second tithe, was a recognition of Israel's vocation to be, and, and recognition of their privilege of being God's chosen people who had the vocation of being the ones through whom the whole world and all nations would be blessed, but starting with the strangers and the needy and the downtrodden that were right in front of them in their midst. Early Christians seemed to have picked up on this practice without much hesitation or interruption. We know from Acts 2 and 4 that converts to Christianity made generous gifts of their possessions for the growth of not only their local churches in which they belong, but also to churches they'd never met in distant cities. We know that St. Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 9 about, those who, about the right of those who labor for the church to be supported by the church that they're serving. And again, in 2 Corinthians 9, about the spiritual and practical benefits of giving generously to the support of the churches. There remains, we see in the Christian movement, nothing controversial about the idea 
that the service of God and the place where one worships uh, involves a financial donation on the part of the person who benefits from that place. What's striking, though, about the Christian expression of tithing is that its emphasis, it emphasized beyond the act of giving the necessity of transforming the heart in addition to the act of giving, not in replacement of it. This is really nothing new if we go back especially to the minor prophets, such as Malachi chapter 3, where we hear that God requires justice and mercy as an inward disposition of the giver in their act of giving, not just a mere going through the motions. Our Lord's own teaching on the subject, though, is the most Um, austere, the most articulate when he says in his Sermon on the Mount that the condition of our hearts is directly linked to the use and disposition toward our treasure, and that he praises the poor, especially the poor widow who gives generously out of her scarcity and shames the rich of Jerusalem who give scantily out of their abundance or give just what's required. Jesus teaches us that God is serious about the importance of generosity and giving in both deed and in truth as a necessary part of the Christian life, of a faithful Christian life. So as Christians, we don't evade the Old Testament's call to tithe and service to God and neighbor. If anything, we're called to see the tithes as a baseline, a given a starting point from which to exercise a more radical generosity, a more radical expression of love for justice and mercy that is meant to permeate all of our actions. The failure to do so, the failure to exercise justice and mercy through generous giving is nothing less, according to the scriptures, than a threat to our friendship with God and to the condition of our souls. As Christians, this should not be a surprise given what we believe. As Christians, we confess that God is Trinity, that he is a unity of three divine persons who exist forever in an eternal relationship of self-giving. The Father eternally begets the Son. The Son eternally submits himself back to his father, who then gives all of creation to his son, who in turn gives all of creation back to his father with perfect thanksgiving. In the eternal communion of gift and return, of gift and thanksgiving, that is the loving relationship between the father and the son, who is the Holy Spirit. We confess as Christians that this triune God is the creator of all things, and this means that he is the author and the owner of everything. He gives us as he sees fit, so that we might hold and use what we've been given in trust and with creativity. We confess that God made us humans in his likeness to be icons of him, to a world that he gave us, in a world in which we're situated that is also a gift from him. Our whole existence, when we see it in this way, is one of a gift-shaped life. We humans have a gift-shaped existence. Our very being is given. The world that conditions our life is given. 
there is nothing we know that is not grounded in the gift of God. We do not author our existence. So when it comes to God's call for our generosity, he's speaking the command from the perspective that to be generous and to give is the most natural thing that a being created in the image of a life-giving, self-giving God would do. Why wouldn't the icon of such a God, a life-giving, self-giving God, do what God does? Why wouldn't it be the most inevitable conclusion? But we know that doesn't always happen. In Revelation 3, our Lord characterizes this sort of this delusion when he addresses the church of Laodicea. Quote, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched that you are pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes that you may see, end quote. When it comes to wealth and possessions, this is the delusion that often attends them we see our wealth and possessions ultimately as ours, full stop. We see them as the inevitable fruit of our good choices and our own hard work. We see them as unconditional personal property under our authority to be doled out by our own standards as we see fit. We see them as totems that safeguard our lives from accidents and tragedies. We marshal them as a shield against the forces of the unforeseen, and we use them like a ring of power to exert change that we see fit and to form institutions according to our notions of what is right and what is proper. Yet for all the ways that we vaunt our own existence and the use of our wealth, the making of our pristine worlds, our customized worlds, this practice of seeing creation as something that bends to our will and is doled out according to our good pleasure remains what the author of Ecclesiastes has always called it, vanity. And this shouldn't be a surprise, because the last 20 years of this nation's economic history should show us what the scriptures have always taken for granted, that we are not in control of our money, and it won't save us in a crisis. It can abandon us, in fact, in the space of a single day. Wealth and possessions will not protect us from everything, and they have approximately zero ability to save us in the hour of the great cataclysm that is the hour of our death. Mammon makes a poor god because he has no answer to the riddle of death. He bids us to keep the party going when we should be numbering our days. Ultimately, all notions of wealth that do not acknowledge this foundational truth of God's giftedness and givenness to us, will, this, is, this, is, this is the idea of wealth that will destroy our souls in the end. 
Only a return to the idea of wealth and the practice of giving generously can save us from the power of mammon. Giving in our tithes and in generosity beyond them is the way that we pray with our money. It is the only way that money does not lead us into spiritual danger. To practice generosity is to proclaim the gospel truth that anything which does not become a part of the new world that God is creating will die. And to embrace, and that to embrace life, we must loosely hold the things of this dying world and offer them to God with hope of redemption. To cling with a tight fist to the things of this dying world results in, at best in disappointment as they are burned away in judgment at the end. And at worst, they become a horror to us as they become the chains that drag us into death with them. But when we return to God as giver and to our place as his icons made to be givers, we return back to a proper relationship to possessions and wealth. We return back to the peace of God that can surpass understanding. We begin to worry less about what we will eat or drink or what we will wear. We begin to know that our Father knows what we need before we ask him. We begin to trust and we begin to live as the small, humble stewards of a big, magnificent world. Mammon is an old dragon, one of the oldest, and service to him makes us old and tired like him, perched upon a hoard of gold with no will left to enjoy it. The life of gift that is the life of God makes us new and reborn every day sets us free to be part of that communion with that eternal joy of the triune God that has only ever been the life of delight in giving. For God has given all to us, and of what is his own we have given back to him. And as our Lord has promised us, if we will attend to his word on this, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.